session with Dr. Farid Holak. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolaku, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Not taking calls today because I'm also on Instagram Live for the show, um, but you can call in on Wednesday's show into the studio if you have any questions, 310-441-0555. Let me get into the books of the week. The book for this week is called The Voices Within, The History and Science of How We Talk to Ourselves. The Voices Within by Charles Fernihoff. And um, this book, actually, I learned of this book while reading the book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight. And it just seemed so fascinating, The Voices Within, the history and science of how we talk to ourselves, trying to understand how we um, talk to ourselves, what that means, where it comes from. And the science, of course, I haven't read the book, but in this book that I'll talk about tonight, it, it came up. So I ordered it and um, really was so excited to read it that I decided to make it the book of the week for this week. So look forward to reading that and sharing it with you on next Monday's show, The Voices Within by Charles Fernihoff. The book of the week for this week is You're Not Listening by Kate Murphy. You're not listening, what you're missing and why it matters. And this was a great book for me, um, and I recommend it for everyone to read. You know, when I do these books of the week, what I enjoy along with what I get to hopefully learn from it specifically in the form of knowledge is that it focuses my attention on a particular topic for that week. For that whole week, I get immersed in that topic. And so with this book about listening and how we so often don't listen or don't listen well or don't put the time into listening or in developing our ability to listen, it was a good reminder to keep that in mind of how I talk to people, how I communicate with people. Of course, as a a psychologist, you're going to be listening to your clients and that's going to be very important, but just in everyday life, how to uh, also do that. So uh, it was interesting for me to, in a way, um, revisit this critical component of conversations or communication. As she says, we sometimes think of listening as talking's meek counterpart, just something that we um, also do when it comes to communication. But sometimes it it can be very much a big component of how we communicate. And not only that, it can be sometimes more important. Sometimes we think the talker or the speaker is the one communicating and the listener is just there until it's their turn. But we really, we, we see that it's much more of a dance and how you listen and what you do to listen can be critical in determining how the communication goes, how the conversation goes. So I really enjoyed this book uh, by Kate Murphy, You're Not Listening, which gives you a lot of insights into various aspects of what listening is and really how we can work on it. Because like anything, we can say um, listening is a skill that we might have a baseline level of ability, but you can definitely develop. So it's not just that you're a good listener or a bad listener, but you can work on, on how you listen. And so The book gets into a lot of interesting things related to that, including the neuroscience of listening. So that was an interesting chapter. Um, One of the very important parts for me was talking about sinking, this feeling that when you sink, S-Y-N-C, not like sinking a boat, but when you sink with someone else, um, sometimes you can really feel it, like you're 
attuned with someone, you're in line, you're on, we even say on the same page. And so neuroscientists have found that the greater the overlap between the speaker's brain activity and the listener's brain activity, the better the communication. So what we feel at times is also showing up in our brains as people can now measure the brains more carefully. And so we see that we actually, when we're communicating well, when you really get each other, you are in a way in sync. Your brains are firing the same way. So if I can get you to think or, or see what I'm seeing or what I saw, you will actually kind to kind of have that same um, experience. And so we could feel that connection. And that's actually what we see is what you can feel. And sometimes you might feel like you're on a different page with someone. You might not feel like you're in sync. And it probably means your brain waves wouldn't be in sync either. So we can see that when we're listening well and when someone's communicating and we're in sync with them, our brains are actually lining up too, which I thought was very interesting. Now, when we hear that this book is about listening, one thing that's important for me is you could probably find lots of things online that will tell you how to be a good listener. And usually what it really is is how to look like you're a good listener or how to convince the other person that you're really listening more than actually listening to someone, which I'll get into what that means. And this is something, a distinction that we always want to be careful about, especially in pop psychology and people who are writing books or posting, not that there's not a lot of great content out there, of course there is, but at times people are looking for a quick fix uh, or looking for what we might call a personality ethic versus a character ethic, which I think was in Stephen Covey's book, um, the, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. But sometimes we're looking for these quick fix ways of being uh, good at something, a personality ethic. How do you look like a good listener? So it might say, nod your head or say, mm-hmm, or whatever else it, it might recommend to you as what it looks like when someone is listening well. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're being a good listener. And usually in the long term, if it's artificial, if it's just on the surface, people will notice that. They'll pick up on the fact that you don't seem to be actually listening to them. So to genuinely listen to someone well, one of the important components is we have to actually be curious in them or about them. You have to want to know and understand what they are saying. It's not just about looking like you're curious. You genuinely need to be curious because they'll feel that. Maybe in a short interaction, you can get away with that. But when you interact long enough, people will see, does this person actually care about what I'm saying? Do they want to know more? Do they make me feel warm, accepted, loved at some level? And that'll make me want to keep talking to them? Or is it just artificial and they're trying to come off that way? So this is something we really want to keep in mind when we're uh, developing any type of relational skill is that we don't want to just look like we're doing the thing or how do you get people to think you're doing it? Uh, or even sometimes there's this mindset of how you can put in the least effort but still get a good result. Uh, we actually have to put the effort and look at what's genuinely going on. Because when you genuinely are listening to someone and showing them you want to listen to them, what you're telling them is, you are important to me. What you have to say is important to me. And I want to give you that time and that space to share what it is you're going to share. And that's very different from how do I get you to think I'm listening to you so you then like me or uh, if it's a negotiation, give me what I want or whatever it might be. So a very important component of listening 
is curiosity, being genuinely curious about other people. And what you find is that people who are good listeners or are known to be good listeners, they tend to be curious people. They want to know. They want to understand. Uh, I can't, I'm not going to say that I'm a good listener necessarily, but one thing I know about myself is that I'm very curious about people in understanding them. And so, of course, this will serve me well with my clients and that I really want to understand what's going on for them, what's going on in their lives. And I want to hear what they have to say and also try to make sense of it. So not just hearing what's on the surface, but really listening to what's deeper and underneath that. And so if you want to be a good listener, you need to be curious about people, which means you need to think that people have something to share. But all too often we think people are boring. I already know what I need to know. What does this person have to say for me or to me? Even with people close in our lives, we very often look at our husbands or wives or close family members and we think, I already know everything you have to say, or what new do you have to say, or I don't even value your opinion or what you might share. And so, of course, you're not going to listen very carefully to that person and give them that feeling that they should share with you. Um, so really looking at listening at a deeper level, it's not just about, of course, hearing the words and comprehending what's going on. It's about giving that person a sense that they matter, that you want to know what they have to say, also that you won't judge what they have to say and make them feel bad if they open up and share something with you, to give them that space and that comfort to express something to you. Because really what you're doing with that safety and that comfort is you're giving them the space not only to say what they're already thinking, but to express and explore what they're thinking and what they feel. And this is actually a big component of how therapy works is that very often in therapy, and not just in therapy, you've experienced this, I'm sure, in your converse, personal conversations, you'll be talking to someone and you've maybe experienced that or you've heard someone else say that, oh, you know what, I never thought about it that way. Or I didn't realize I felt that way about this thing. And that's a very uh, important part of good listening is that you let someone explore. And so a lot of times in therapy, you might think the therapist is going to tell you what you think or what you feel or what to do, but that's almost never the case. It's actually more about helping you explore within yourself. And so with a safe guide or a safe hand to walk with you, it makes it easier for you to explore those parts of yourself to see what else is there. Because sometimes we might be afraid to see what's there or what we're feeling or what we're thinking or what we want. But with a safe hand walking by us or walking with us, it makes that much easier. So good listeners tend to have some of these qualities of showing interest, being curious, making you feel comfortable, making you not feel like they're waiting to jump in and say something. So giving you that space, both actually and also with their body language and demeanor and making you felt, feel understood. You know, sometimes you might see someone listening to you and then based on how they respond, you realize it doesn't seem like they were uh, listening at all or really getting you because they just responded in a way that shows that they're totally off. Going back to that feeling synced, you don't feel in sync with them. And you'll notice that when you don't get that feeling, when you don't feel like you're in sync with them, it usually just shuts down your feelings. It makes you want to shut down and create some space. Uh, so in the book, it, it does a great job of exploring different aspects of what makes someone a good listener and some of the science behind it. And I'll get into some of the other important things or things that I, I thought were interesting. Um, for example, also about assumptions, going back to that point that when you 
assume you already know what someone has to say. You're not going to really listen to them well because you already think you know or think you know more than them or think you know um, or think what they're going to say is not very important. So these assumptions, she actually uh, say says that assumptions are like earplugs. When you assume things, you're obviously not going to take things in. And it's important to note that genuine deep listening is not happening just with the ears. You're looking, you're looking for eye contact for the brief changes in tones. Of course, that might be partially hearing, of course, but it's not just the words that you're listening to. You're noticing, you know what, when he said that, he made a grimace or made a face, or she hesitated before she said that, or whatever it might be. And you know that there's a lot in between the lines and in between the words that is being expressed. And when you're listening at a deeper level, it's not just about hearing the words. Now, hearing the words and paying attention can be tough because of something that's called the speech-thought differential, which is essentially that we can think faster than someone tends to speak. And so it doesn't take all of our mental energy to hear the words, which makes it easy for some other thought or distraction to get in the way of us fully paying attention. And so you might lose sight uh, or stop listening, and then you come back and realize you missed some of what was being said. And so what this means is that we have to put even more attention in focusing on the person we're listening to, to not just say, okay, I'm hearing the words, I'm okay, but really focusing on using all our senses, where actually it could take up more of your mental bandwidth uh, than just listening for the words or hearing the words. So when we genuinely listen, we're focused so much on that individual that it's not just about their words, and actually that'll make it easiest for us to stay there. And here's another example of why mindfulness is so important. Being in the moment, being connected means I'm fully present with you. But if you're listening to someone and then your mind wanders somewhere else, well, then of course you're not giving them your full presence and they'll usually feel that in some way or it'll come across in the communication. Um, another interesting chapter was on listening to opposing views. And especially in today's polarized climate, we know that's even more strongly the case where people don't want to listen to opposing views. They um, want to just call the other side stupid or say they're idiots or, you know, if someone believes that they have nothing to contribute, so I'm not going to listen to them anyway. And it was interesting, she shared some research that showed that when we have our beliefs challenged, when we feel very strongly about something, it's similar to the, the analogy they use is how the brain responds if it's being chased by a bear, so facing some big threat. And of course, when you're being or feeling like you're being chased by a bear, you're obviously not going to be listening very well. And so this is why we see in some of these political conversations or debates, no one's really listening to each other anyway. And if you're feeling that threatened, of course, you're going to lock down even more in what you believe and try to push away this foreign object or what's challenging you or threatening you. Uh, and the way I thought about this, if we look at it in another way, is when the bear is chasing us, you feel like your life is in danger. But when our ideas or our beliefs get challenged, it could feel like our identity, which is in a way our emotional or intellectual self or life is being challenged. And that feels very scary of not being wrong or being uh, incorrect about something or something that you believed in, which was part of your identity, let's say a religious belief or a political ideology. If that gets challenged, of course, it could feel, feel like you're almost dying in some way if that's how you identified yourself. But it's interesting to see that when they look in the brain, when someone is being challenged about their belief, uh, they have this really strong reaction as if they're being threatened for their life 
which might explain why, again, we are so bad at listening to people who have different uh, views from us. So the book really was, again, great in, in reiterating or reminding us of the importance of listening. And of course, there's some cliche type statements about people and being on their phones and people, um, you know, not paying attention to each other, but it is very true. And we see that happening or people's attention spans becoming less. We have seen shifts in this direction, unfortunately. And as much as we can communicate in all these different types of ways that are, uh, might seem like easier or more convenient, we still see that nothing can replace that face-to-face interaction, even in person. Now when we say face-to-face, we might think of our Zoom and FaceTime types of things, but it is different than being in person with someone. But of course, hopefully we can get close to that with technology in these times. Um, But the importance of having those types of communications. I work with families and sometimes I see that parents with their young children, they're using their phones or they're distracted. And your kids will feel that. In the book, Kate Murphy shares a story of someone who said uh, their toddler um, throws their phones into the toilet several times. And only that object, clearly the toddler is seeing what's taking their parents' attention away from from that young child. So we do have to be aware of the tendency in today's society to go away from listening to each other, to being distracted by the things that get in the way and how we have to actually actively, we talk about this term active listening, but we have to actively make sure we take the time to have those kinds of conversations, to give someone that space. And really it's at times the greatest gift you can give someone is to truly and genuinely listen to them, to give them that space and that time and your attention to say, I want to listen to you. What you have to say is important to me. You are letting them in to your life and saying, what you have to say is valuable to me and to not underestimate the importance of just listening. Uh, And very often what gets in the way of listening is a lot of things, including thinking we have to fix or solve uh, the problem or whatever issue someone is dealing with. So if you have that pressure, you're less likely to want to hear what they have to say. If they're sad about something and you think you need to fix the problem for them and that's too much pressure, you might not be able to do it, you might be afraid to ask. But if you realize that you're gift to them might just be listening to them and giving them compassion and giving them understanding, that could take away a lot of the pressure and make it easier for us to be there for one another. Because most of the time we can't fix people's problems or we don't need to. But just being there can make things a little bit easier or less hard. The classic example I use is if a friend loses a loved one, someone has died, you can't bring that person back. You can't do anything to take away that pain. But by being by their side, you can maybe make it a little bit less bad. You won't make it good, but making it less bad can be worth a lot and maybe the best that anyone could offer that person at that time. So don't forget about this gift of listening and how critical and important it is and how easy it is for us in today's day and age to get lost in not not listening or being on our phones and thinking, well, I'm still hearing the words, but listening means genuinely giving that person your time and attention. And that's really a true feeling of love. Let's go to a commercial break. Uh, we'll keep talking after break, maybe about this book or about some other topics. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Jalakwi. We'll be right back. Mm-hmm. 
Welcome back. So in the first segment, I was talking about the book, You Are Not Listening by Kate Murphy. And uh, I've talked a few times about how I understand the irony of me talking for an hour about uh, listening. It's kind of funny, but we all can use some practice in that. So in this case, I'm going to be talking more, but hopefully listening later and listening to some of you as well. Um, one interesting chapter, and I mentioned the next book of the week I'm doing is The Voices Within the History and Science of How We Talk to Ourselves by Charles Fernihuff. And it's about the voice in our head. And actually, we kind of have a conversation going in our head. And what we get better at as we get older, usually, is to have that conversation in our heads and not outside. You see kids, a lot of times they're just talking out loud to themselves. And all of us have probably caught ourselves in a moment talking out loud, maybe in public. And you might get embarrassed about it, but it's okay. We all do it. But we know we're having this, these conversations in our head. And there's a lot of different ways to look at this. We have sometimes different parts of ourselves. Some people might not like hearing that. Doesn't mean you have split personality. But for example, we can say there's a part of yourself that's more short-term thinking and a part that's more long-term. That's why when you... Uh, want to go to the gym, you know, you might know it's good for you. Well, right now you might not be able to go to, in most places because gym's clothing, closing, but you might want to go to the gym knowing it's good for you, but also in the moment that short-term part of you wants to relax or doesn't want to push itself or get out of the comfort zone and doesn't want to go, and you might feel like there is this uh, battle within yourself. So we know that's happening. We do have these um, conversations within ourselves, different aspects. So sometimes it's happening without words or we might not hear it, but at times we actually are in a way feeling like we're having this conversation or debate between, you know, sometimes we'll hear it as good versus evil. And so you've seen it in, in so many movies and cartoons where there's a devil on one shoulder and an angel on another shoulder, in a way having a conversation between each other to see who wins. And so at the end, one of them wins and we'll see if we do the good or the bad thing. But this is happening all the time. And so we have these voices within our head. And the reason why I wanted to read this book was because uh, the, the book I'm going to read this week is she mentioned his work that we can see that in some ways we internalize the voices of people around us. And this is really important in general to keep in mind who we surround ourselves with. But especially this is important for parents to keep in mind. And we say this to clients a lot because you hear it. They'll say, for example, my parents were so critical. They were always judging me and comparing me to other people, to other kids, about school, about how I looked, and, and whatever else it might be. And then if you notice how they talk to themselves, very often it has a similar theme. They'll be critical and judgmental uh, to themselves and comparing themselves to others. So we notice that people tend to internalize this voice of their parents. In some ways, we can also call this the superego, but not just that. It's the way we also talk to ourselves. That's very uh, critical, and we see that. It feels very automatic. When people are critical on themselves or to, you know, against themselves or self-punishing, usually it's not something they think about. It just feels automatic. They do something, and they judge it. Um, they think of something, and they notice the, the bad things about what they're thinking about or what they did. And so I say this for parents to keep in mind. When you're talking to your child, imagine them saying those types of things to themselves for the rest of their life. Is how I'm talking to them, the words I'm choosing, the tone, 
the themes that I'm expressing to them, how I want them to talk to themselves. Because very often I'll work with parents or you hear stories and they say, I want my child to be more confident. But if you see how they talk to their kid, they're putting the kid down, telling them, oh, you should do this to be better. You can do that better. And if you ask them, they say, see, I'm telling them because I want them to be so good. So I'm pointing out the things that are wrong so they can keep improving and getting better. But what you're actually doing is you're teaching your child this constant phrase of you are not enough. You are not good enough. And if you be this way, people might not like you or love you. You need to be better. You need to be more. It's never enough. And this is a classic parenting strategy and unfortunately very common one in the Iranian community that you shouldn't praise your kids even when they do something good because then they're going to get complacent. They're going to get cocky and they won't try anymore. They'll stop doing things. They'll stop working hard. And so you always have to make sure they recognize they could have done better. You have to point out what was wrong with what they did so that they don't think they're they're already good enough and they're they're done. And this is where this key word of acceptance comes into play. Such a powerful word. Now, when people hear acceptance, if I say, okay, if you didn't do something, I want you to approach it from the mindset of acceptance. We usually think that means I'm just giving up and saying that's it. So if I say, let's see how good you are at math and you take a test and we, if whatever score you get, we want you to accept that. Now you can work on it, but right now we want you to accept that that's where you are now. doesn't mean you give up. The example I use is if you have a five-year-old and you're working with them on math, since I just used that example, and you ask them to do some problems and you see they can do addition, but they can't do subtraction. You don't judge them that they can't do subtraction. You say, okay, good. You can do addition, way to go. But you're not saying that's it. You don't have to do any more or uh, try to... Uh, do better, but you're saying that's where you are now and we're going to keep going. And so when you talk to your kids, it's not that you have to also praise them in a fake way, because that's not healthy either. If we think about that voice, if you tell your kid you're better than other people, you uh, don't need to do or follow the rules because of who you are, um, you don't have to try anything, or if they don't do well on something, say it was actually very good, that's not going to help them either. But actually seeing them for who they are and encouraging them and reinforcing the good things about them will help them have that same conversation with themselves to accept themselves. And again, acceptance doesn't mean I'm done growing. Acceptance means I accept myself how I am today. And if actually I love myself, I want to continue growing and getting better. I'm not done, but I'm here today. And that's all I can do up to now. And now I want to go forward. And so reading uh, this this part of the book and you're not listening and also why I wanted to read the next book about the voices within was to learn more about how we internalize this inner voice, which really we carry with us and affects everything we do and don't do and how we feel about ourselves. And especially to remind parents that just imagine if you're saying something mean to your kid for another 70 years, 80 years, they might be saying that same mean thing or having that same mean attitude towards themselves. They're going to internalize that voice and keep saying it to themselves. So before you speak to your child, or really in an overall way, thinking of how you communicate to your child, think of what that voice would be like if what you're sharing, what you're saying sits inside of their head for the rest of their life. Is it something 
good and positive that will help them feel good about themselves and make them want to grow? Or is it something that's going to make them feel judged, negative, and critical? It's something that almost everyone I work with in therapy, these things come up of that negative inner voice, judging themselves, quickly telling themselves they're bad or not good enough, or people won't like you, or people only will like you if you're perfect, or whatever else it might be. We all have these negative aspects of that inner voice, which almost always has come from the negative things our parents have shared with us. And so the parents maybe have the biggest role in this from childhood, but also in our lives going forward. Think about how we talk to the people around us. What are you sharing with them? It doesn't mean you have to lie to them. It doesn't mean you can never say anything that they might dislike. But how are you expressing that to them? And so this goes back to even as the parents, if they do something wrong, you don't have to say you did it right. But the way you talk about what they did is so important. What is that feeling that the person has? More than just the words, it's about the feeling. What feeling do you give your child about how you feel about them? Is it a positive one? Is it one that you're loved? that you're appreciated, that you're respected? Or is it one that you're constantly not enough? You need to do better. You need to do more. I'm disappointed in you. And imagine them living with that for the rest of their lives. And then now even with your friends and family, think about those things. How am I contributing to that voice? Because in the book, it it talked about how it could be coaches, mentors, other people that we have in our lives as well. And this is even how therapy can be helpful too, is that by having these interactions with a therapist who hopefully responds in an authentic way, but a loving type of way towards you with that unconditional positive regard that Carl Rogers talked about, it could start to shift the way we talk to ourselves. Or you might be somewhere and think about what your therapist would say or what someone would say to you. And sometimes people do that. You'll be somewhere and maybe you feel really down on yourself and you'll think, well, what would my therapist say? Or what would my cousin say who's very kind to you or your friend say? And that can actually help you. Or the reverse. Unfortunately, we might talk to ourselves in a certain way that's negative, but if our loved loved one was in the same situation, we would not talk in that way. Or if we imagined a child now, we might not talk to them in that same way we might talk to ourselves. And it's something that we can try to, to be aware of and be mindful of. So, of course, the book was about listening and how important and significant that is and how we can improve how we listen, which is so important. But of course, we want to be so mindful of when we talk. What are we expressing to the people around us? How can we be aware of that? That in a way, it's this gift that will hopefully keep on giving or it can be a curse that will keep on taking from them for the rest of their lives. We can make them feel good, loved, and supported and then make themselves feel good, loved, and supported towards themselves Or we can give them the feeling that they're not good enough and then encourage them to think of themselves as not good enough for the rest of their lives. The path to being successful and to being happy isn't to tell someone that they're never enough. That's not how we get them there, to make them feel like you're not good enough so they keep pushing. We want to show them that you're good enough for now, for today, and because you love yourself, you will continue to grow, but that you aren't not enough today. You are enough today. And so parents, be very aware, even every so often ask yourself, if I think of how and what I've communicated to my child in this last week, what feeling do I think I've given my child? And if my child were to talk to themselves for the rest of their life that way, 
would I feel good about that? It's a, uh, a lot of pressure in a way. You have a lot of power and responsibility in how your child will think and feel about themselves. We want to make sure we take that seriously and be aware of that impact that we're having. Let's go on to our last commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So during the break on the Instagram Live, some people had some comments and questions, and we got a question. I won't say the name in case they don't want their name said, but um, it says, I've broke up with my boyfriend. I miss him. He is going uh, on a date four weeks after I moved out. I am angry at him. Shouldn't he wait some time first before moving on? He's on a dating site. So um, again, breakups are very painful. So I'm sorry you're going through that at this time. It is very challenging. Now, there's several aspects to your question, of course. Um, you know, you said, shouldn't he wait? And so in a way, you're asking me to, to judge what he did, uh, which I'm not going to do because I'm not going to say what he did is right or wrong. I can see how you wouldn't like it. And also, as always, we want to look at, of course, we're going to feel some things, but see what we can learn from from what's happened. Now, one thing I'll say about breakups in general is that people very often, you know, it's interesting. It's kind of how we look at relationships. It's very much uh, kind of like a, a war or a battle. There's a lot of who's winning, who is, who has the upper hand, who has the power in the relationship. And then afterwards, who won and who lost, who got the worst, uh, you know, out of the breakup or who's doing better after, out of the breakup. And I think it's unfortunate that we put so much of this win-lose war type of mentality into relationships or even when we get the relationship who's getting the better deal you know who has a better status or is better on paper very often we're thinking of it in these very uh, adversarial type of ways very much like a business transaction and not really about two people relating to each other as human beings of course there's feelings of course we're going to have a lot of things come up but unfortunately we look at a lot of win and lose and one of the ways people measure this is who moves on faster and who is more sad after the breakup? And these are things that we look at is, oh, if, if they're already dating someone, they won. If the other person isn't dating someone, oh, that person is crying and the other one is not crying anymore. Well, the one who's not crying has won in this breakup, which is not at all the case. It's not true at all in various ways. Now, I don't want to say who's winning or losing, but if we look at the health of what we're dealing with, so if, if you've been with someone for a long time in a long relationship, it would make sense for you to be sad when that relationship ends. I wouldn't say I'm going to tell someone what they should feel, but I would actually say if you don't get sad at all after the end of a long-term relationship, unless there was something that makes it very unique, but in general, a relationship that lasted, but let's say you figure out you're not right for each other. If you don't feel sad at all, that would be a red flag for me of your own uh, psyche or what you're dealing with, because it would tell us probably one of two things, either one, you never let yourself get that close to this person, because if you've been with them for a long time and you don't feel anything when the relationship ends, that is alarming. That means you probably didn't let yourself get close to them enough where you would feel something. So actually I commend people 
in relationships, when they actually allow themselves, of course, with the right timing as a relationship goes forward, to feel connected to that person, that it will hurt when it ends if we genuinely let ourselves get close to someone. And so if two people are in a relationship and one of them is very in it and committed and feels feelings for their partner and the other one doesn't, I wouldn't say that one that doesn't feels feel any feelings is somehow winning or doing better. They actually are probably coming from a space of fear and weakness to allow themselves to be intimate with that person emotionally, to connect with them. So that to me is not a sign of strength. Or the other alternative is they're feeling pain, they're sad, they're upset, but they're not showing it. They're either hiding it from themselves or maybe around other people. They're not showing it to, to come off strong because maybe feeling um, uh, sad makes them feel weak. They don't want to cry in front of people or in front of themselves. So they're hiding those feelings that are there. That's not healthy either. That's not going to be a, a good sign. So if you show me two people post-breakup and one is crying and one isn't, I, that doesn't tell me definitely I would never say the one crying is losing and the one not crying is winning or anything like that. I wouldn't necessarily say, no, the one crying is doing something good, but I would be concerned if someone said they never cried after breaking up in a long-term relationship. So that's something we want to make sure we keep in mind that we don't get caught into this who's winning and who's losing in the breakup. And then the other thing, as I was saying, related to that is who's who has a boyfriend or girlfriend faster, who's dating faster. Uh, very often people, you know, we have a term for it, rebound. It's because they're dating just to try to cover that pain. I feel um, a pain of losing you, like withdrawing from a drug that hurts. Let me quickly replace it with a similar drug, someone else. Um, sometimes people go back to the same person to get that same drug again because it's too hard to move on and to, and to go forward. Um, but sometimes people just go to someone else. So it might be them not processing the feelings, not processing the loss, not wanting to feel those feelings and saying, you know what, let me just go be with someone else. So it doesn't necessarily tell me that person is um, healthier, stronger, or doing well. But you see this a lot in people's lives or also you know, celebrity relationships that become so public, they pay attention to, oh, this person broke up and so-and-so has already started dating and the other one isn't dating. And somehow it's like, look at her, look at him living their best life, being happy. When it's not so clear to me that if they haven't processed the loss of what's happened, that might, that's not going to be good. Because if you haven't processed the pain and healed from the pain from your previous relationship, is inevitably going to affect your next relationship. You're going to carry that forward into the next relationship. And so I've worked so many times with couples where one of them, sometimes both of them, but one of them started the relationship in kind of a rebound form where they uh, were trying to get over someone so they thought they'd start dating someone else, but now it's turned into something more serious than they expected. They thought it might be a short-term rebound, but now there it gets more serious. And oftentimes what happens is now when that relationship is getting more serious, because they haven't processed the loss of that last person, they're having some issues in connecting with the new partner, or they're realizing there's still some feelings tied into that last partner that they didn't get to process. So we want to be mindful of some of these assumptions we have about, first of all, just health and mental health, that if you're crying, it's bad. If you're not crying, it's good. If something painful happens, crying and being sad makes sense. If a family member dies, having tears makes sense. And this is why I sometimes 
um, take issue with people saying, oh, I, I went to so-and-so's house after their mom died and he was so strong. He wasn't crying at all. Uh, I don't want to say again, he has to be sad and he has to cry. Maybe he was doing that in front of you, but in private, he was expressing his grief and grieving. I hope that would be the case, but it does come with this assumption that if you're not crying, it's stronger than if you're crying. And I think that's a problem because it, when we need to heal, we need to allow for that time. So if two people break their legs and you say, oh, that guy was walking the next day without a cast and walking on that leg, I wouldn't say that's necessarily a good thing. That person needs to let that wound heal for that bone to heal and get stronger, not just pretend like it's not there. So we always want to be aware of this tendency we have to assume that if someone is not sad or not feeling negative feelings, they're doing something good. If someone disrespects you and you feel nothing, that might not be a good thing to have no feelings about it. Not necessarily to have to lose your mind with anger, but it can make sense that you have some feeling to it. If something sad happens, you can feel that sadness in the moment, process it however long it takes, and move on. So going back to this um, question about I was had a boyfriend and I can't really have it back and forth with you about how long that relationship was, but you said after you moved out, which would... Um, mean that you were living together, which means it was probably more serious uh, than not serious and longer term. And him dating after four weeks, I can see how that bothered you and upset you. And it's very painful. You're still feeling attached to him probably after four weeks. And then you know you're saying he's on a dating site and that he's out there dating. It's it's not going to to feel good. And very often when we have a breakup in general, not only are we dealing with what's happening now, but we're dealing with the pain of losing all the things we'd planned in the future with that person. Maybe you imagined getting married, having kids, living your life together, growing old together. So you have to say goodbye to those dreams, which can be very painful. And then also people usually go back and review their relationship. It's kind of like if you're watching a movie and then there's a twist ending, it can make you look back at everything that happened before that twist ending to try to understand what happened before. So when you then find out there's a breakup and then now the person is dating so quickly, it can at times bring up feelings of, well, what did that mean was going on in our relationship? Was it important to this person if they're already dating someone else? And it's not so clear, of course, if if it's one way or the other, but I can understand those thoughts or feelings coming up. And, and we don't know, is he really not over it and he's doing this to to help move on? Is it his way of dealing with things? But very often people can have these questions about what was going on in our relationship if they are already dating someone else. So you say you miss him and you're angry with him. And it might seem strange, but those two feelings can fe- can be compatible. You can feel those two things about the same person. And so what you want to try to be aware of is that you don't just let that missing feeling overpower what you also are seeing is going on. Very often people break up and it hurts, as I was just talking about. In some ways it should hurt. It should feel painful to end a relationship. It is like a way of grieving a loss of someone. In a way they're dying for you, at least the way they were in your life has died, which can be very painful. So it makes sense that it hurts. And so going back to what I was saying before about our relationship with painful feelings, if we think, I feel bad, I have to get rid of this feeling, The quickest way to get rid of the feelings you have when you have a pain of a breakup is to go back to that person you were with, if that's a possibility. And many people do that. That's why we see it happening. And like I said, it's like withdrawing from a drug. 
the quickest way to get over withdrawal symptoms is to use the drug again. Not at all recommending that or encouraging that, but that just is the truth of what we experience. So very often when we feel sad and we miss the person, we want to go back to them. And sometimes people will say things, oh, if after two weeks you still miss the person, that's telling you something. No, not necessarily. It can make sense. You still miss them way longer than that even. And you want to make sure you don't um, get misled by those painful feelings to think you have to go back with someone just because you have some missing feelings for them. So give your time, give yourself some time and space to process these feelings. I understand you're angry with him for dating. Um, maybe you thought you guys had a chance to get back together. Of course, I don't know much about the whole story. Um, but if you have those feelings, it's going to be important for you to try to take some time to realize what you're feeling, what's going on, what do I want to do going forward? Because he's made his decision, he's done some things, and that's that's on him. Now you're going to recognize what you want to do with that. What do you want to do? Your process of healing doesn't have to be the same as his. Sometimes people will see that their partner is dating and they think, I need to also date. And we can be so preoccupied with our ex that even we go on dates hoping somehow it gets back to them because we want to make them jealous. And so it's not even about us experiencing the date. It's about trying to change how that person feels either about us or to make them feel bad or whatever it might be. Relationships and breakups can bring up some really intense feelings in us. So don't be surprised if you have a whole bunch of um, ideas that come up for you or different um, types of desires or temptations to try something to make him feel something, but try to separate that he is responsible for his actions and you're responsible for yours. So when you ask me um, that he you know, shouldn't be dating now, I, I can understand that, but he's going to make that decision for him and you have to allow for that. You can't control what he does and you're going to have to focus on yourself. And I hope you'll focus on your healing because it is painful. You said you're mad, you miss him, and it's going to take some time. And don't be fooled into thinking that, well, if he's dating, that means he's okay. Or if he's dating, it means I didn't mean anything to him. Very often people start dating to get over or get rid of that pain that they had from the relationship. We don't know that they uh, necessarily didn't feel something. And if he didn't feel that much and he can move on that quickly, that also will be telling us something. So for whatever reason he's dating again, I can see how you don't like it, but it doesn't reflect so well on him and what he's doing. And it doesn't mean you have to let it affect you in whatever way you are experiencing what's going through. And sometimes people will say things like, you know, he, in this case, it's, you're saying him, he doesn't deserve your tears. When you're crying, you're not giving, you know, you're not collecting your tears and giving it to that person. You're crying to heal the pain of the loss for you. You have gone through something painful and you deserve to cry for you if that's how you feel. You're not giving him anything. You are not taking away from yourself if you're sad about this. If you were in a long relationship with someone and you feel sad about it, I commend you. That makes sense. That means you put part of your heart, your feelings, and gave it to that person. And it hurts when that relationship ends. So I hope you will be kind to yourself in this process. If you are sad, if you're going through a lot of feelings, give yourself the time to process it. It's not necessary, but sometimes people can go into therapy if they're having a hard time grieving 
a breakup or some kind of loss, and that can help you process some of the feelings that are coming up. And just keep in mind that what he does after the breakup is on him, and it's about him. It's not about you. And what you do is going to be up to you. And I hope you'll do whatever it is that will be healing for you to grow and move on from this. But thank you for your question. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. Thank you for everyone tuning in uh, on Radio Hamra and also on Instagram Live. Appreciate seeing you out there. Thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delakwi. Have a wonderful night. 